Well, good evening, everybody. It's good to see all of you here tonight. Uh, let's open uh, with prayer as we get started. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for this time as we continue our study through the screw tape letters. We ask that uh, you would give us uh, discernment and that uh, you know, as we uh, see the different things written by Christians in the past, that you would help us to, uh, to recognize what is right and wrong. And uh, also we ask that you would help us as we um, are thinking about and considering different ways that um, Satan can tempt us and try to distract us and lead us away from you, that you would uh, help us to be vigilant and to persevere in our faith and to uh, follow after Christ above all things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we move now into letters five and six, you'll see a, a little bit of uh, Lewis's historical context coming out when he starts to talk about um, this great war that's going on, uh, especially early on as the European War, because uh, he's writing this before the United States has gotten gotten involved. And so uh, in talking about World War II, it's, it really is a European conflict at that point. And that's going to come up again and again throughout these letters, and you know, that's just what's going on during this time period. And, um, and so he incorporates that, into, um, uh, incorporates that into these letters. But as we get into letter five today, uh, there's two things I want to uh, bring out from this letter. And the first of those is actually something that Lewis gets wrong. Uh, Lewis is, uh, while he writes a lot of good stuff and he has things that he's helpful, uh, there's also things that he's wrong on and uh, something that's a little bit, uh, I don't know if I want to say unique to him per se, but um, towards the end of the letter, he talks about, um, let me just read what he says there. Towards the end of the letter, he writes, um, about he, which is God, often makes prizes of humans who have given their lives for causes he thinks bad on the monstrously sophistical ground that the humans thought them good and were following the best they knew. Um, Lewis also has a section in the Chronicles of Narnia in the last battle where he has a character who uh, is part of the enemy and who uh, worships and follows after the, uh, the false god of this enemy country. Uh, but this individual person t is a virtuous person and ends up uh, with the good people in the afterlife uh, afterwards. And uh, one of the things that he has Aslan saying uh, to this individual, um, no service which is vile can be done to me, and none which is not vile can be done to him, which, um, uh, which is the false god. Therefore, if any man swear by Tash, that's the name of the false god, uh, if, therefore, if any man swear by Tash and keep his oath for the oath's sake, it is by me that he is truly sworn, though he know it not, and it is I who reward him. And if any man do a cruelty in my name, then though he says the name Aslan, it is Tash whom he serves, and by Tash his deed is accepted. Now, unfortunately, the, uh, this section here from Screwtape and that other section from the Chronicles of Narnia, these are ideas that Lewis is talking about in works of fiction. So he, it's not like you have an extended treatise where he's developed all of this, but it, it seems to be that he's saying here that God will receive things done by people uh, who have good intentions, um, even if that action wasn't directly uh, directed towards God. Uh, and so an example of this would be, um, you know, someone, uh, you, you could have someone in a false religion, who is doing good things because it's the right thing to do, and they're trying to, to do what they believe is right and is good, um, but they're doing it in service to another religion because they don't know who God is. 
Lewis seems to be saying in some way that God receives that or accepts that uh, in a certain sense. And again, it's a little bit difficult. This isn't like he, you know, he hasn't, at least not in these writings. I don't know if he does in other places, but I'm not aware of a section where he develops this theologically. You know, is he, is he saying that um, someone can be a Christian and go to heaven uh, if they follow a false religion, but they have a, you know, a good heart or sincere? I don't know that Lewis is saying that, um, but whatever he's saying here is at least a little bit weird. And so I want to clarify a little bit about uh, what we say as, uh, as Reformed Presbyterians um, about this issue of, you know, can an unbeliever do things that are good? Um, you know, we know people who aren't Christians, and, and those people can do things that uh, are good in a certain sense. But there is another sense in which they aren't able to do what is good, and I want to uh, clarify a little bit what that means. So, for example... Uh, someone can be charitable. Uh, you can have someone who's not a Christian, and they give money to help orphans. That's a, a good thing to do. It is a lot better to give money to orphans than it would be to, um, to spend that money on self-indulgence. We would rather that person be charitable than to be selfish and greedy with their money. And so in that sense, in that qualified sense, you could say that they've done a good thing. However, we read in the scriptures that about, you know, that which is not of faith is sin. And our uh, confession even talks about those things um, which are done for uh, the wrong end, and then they're not doing it for the glory of God. Um, because of that, nothing that an unbeliever does can actually be considered as truly good. Um, as Christians, um, we do things by faith, and we do things for the glory of God. We've got a a goal with the good things that we do. Um, we do them by at least some semblance of a, a right motive, not always perfectly right, but um, with a, a right motive. And those things are or can be considered as good. Uh, but an unbeliever is unable to do that. Uh, an unbeliever, while they may do things that are good in a certain sense, they can actually truly do good because they're not doing it for the glory of God. Their motivations are corrupt in certain ways. Um, and they aren't doing it by faith. And so this is an area that we would disagree with what Lewis is, is saying here in this section. Um, and so I just wanted to, to point that out for you all. He's got a lot of good things that he says, but there are, time, there are going to be times when he says things that we, we don't agree with as Reformed Presbyterians. So I just wanted to, to say that at the outset. Are there any questions or comments about that? I'd like to... Uh, yeah, Jeff. Stand <laughs> uh, the very first of the book, he puts a disclaimer about street faith being a liar, that he lies, but he can't really. That is, that is true. That is something we got to keep in mind. Screw tape is a liar. Uh, and so, not everything Screw Tape says uh, should be taken as true or correct. Um, the only reason I flag this is because I also know that Lewis writes about, uh, says similar things in the Chronicles of Narnia which makes me think that this is something of his mindset. Um, as I said, they're coming out in works of fiction, though, so it's hard to make dogmatic claims about what, something, so, about what somebody believes when the only times you're seeing that are in fiction works. But there's having it multiple times makes me think there's something there. So uh, Sam and then Randy. Sorry, Dave, I came in late, but what, what page are you on, and what is this? 
Um, so I've got a, a different edition. This is towards the end. Page 23, uh, letter 5, yes. It's where he says, He often makes prizes of humans who have given their lives for causes he thinks bad on the monstrously sophistical ground that the humans thought them good and were following the best they knew. Yeah. Randy, you had a question. Since he's an Anglican, what is their belief in the... So for Zoom, Randy's asking that since Lewis was an Anglican, is this a, uh, an Anglican um, belief? I do not know. Um, now, among... Uh, so among Anglicans, you're going to have a lot of diversity. Uh, historically, Anglicans, you had a lot of Anglicans that were very close to Reformed theology, um, but then you started to have differences and splits, and um, and even now today, you've got some Anglicans that tend to be more Reformed, but you've got, I mean, just as you have a wide variety of Presbyterians, you've got about as wide a variety of, of Anglicans as well. Um, so traditional, I mean, historically, traditional Anglicanism, which would be closer to Reformed theology, uh, this wouldn't fit with that, but uh, I'm not sure with um, with his time period if this would be something they believed or not. Uh, I will at least say, though, this is something that Christians have struggled with throughout the ages in terms of how do you view unbelievers. I mean, you've got unbelievers who can do great, good things in a certain sense. I mean, you've got unbelievers who can be incredibly uh, philanthropic, um, You've got unbelievers that can run hospitals and orphanages and all these kinds of things. And so how do we view that? That's something that Christians have struggled with, how to, how to understand that for a long time. And so I'm, I'm not going to you know, bash Lewis over the head for this. I just want to point out that this is something that traditionally in Reformed theology we would disagree with them on. So any other questions or comments on that? Hopefully I helped clear things up a little bit instead of muddying them, but if I muddied them, you can come ask me about it later. <laughs> All right. Uh, second thing I wanted to bring out in this letter, and this is something uh, that Lewis is now is, you know, World War II is being introduced uh, and starting to, to talk about wars. Um, uh, actually, in the same paragraph as that section, but towards the end, uh, Screw Tape starts to talk about um, actually part of the from their perspective, uh, part of the downsides of war. And so uh, he talks about how disastrous for us is the continual remembrance of death which war enforces. One of our best weapons, contented worldliness, is rendered useless. And so here we see a, a contrast being introduced between death and contented worldliness. And I think we've talked about this before at some point. I can't remember if it was in the context of the screw tape letters or a um, a different class or, or lesson, but uh, in talking about um, the importance and the role of death. Uh, death reminds us of our mortality. It, re- it forces us to think about the question of what happens after death, and that necessarily leads to the questions of afterlife, God, right and wrong, and what is my standing before God. Uh, this is why Ecclesiastes 7 talks about it's better to be in the house of mourning than to be in the house of feasting. Because being in the house of mourning, that's, the, that's reminding us of death, and the righteous person or the wise person will see that and contemplate how we're all going to die in the end. 
You know, people talk about there's only a couple sure things in this world, death and taxes, right? You know, and our world doesn't like to think about death. Our world likes a contented worldliness, and Satan likes a contented worldliness, because death forces us to deal with those questions. And so here Screwtape is, you know, talking about, well, yes, war can bring out terrible things in human beings. There's a lot of atrocities that can be committed in war. Um, and you can, you know, there's a lot of opportunities for temptation on individuals within that, that context. But there's also, from their perspective, you know, a, a bad side to war, which, you know, Christians or people will think about death. You've got that proverb, you know, no atheists in foxholes. Um, you know, at that moment, they're, they're realizing, they, they know in their heart there's a God. They've been suppressing it. But once you start to have to face that question about what happens when you die, it becomes a little bit harder to suppress some of that sometimes. And people's hearts will start to come out and be revealed more in those moments. But it's also important for us to recognize not just the, the impact that death has on people and, and recognizing their mortality and thinking about those ultimate questions. We also need to recognize how important this idea of contented worldliness is. And especially in our own culture and day and age, we, I mean, that describes a lot of what our culture desires and values. The worldliness, it's focused on all these things in this world, money, entertainment, all this stuff, and just this desire to, to have a, a complacency, to just kind of go through life and to have life be comfortable and enjoyable. And what happens when life becomes comfortable and enjoyable, especially from a spiritual perspective? Well, we start to become lethargic. We start to become lazy. We start to forget. I mean, think about the Israelites. What, what is the thing that they are warned about and the thing that immediately happens once they enter the, enter the promised land? They forget about God. Life had become easy for them. You know, in slavery and bondage and all that suffering, what are they doing? They're crying out to God, and God's like, I hear you. I'm going to answer. But as soon as God brings them out of that and they get into the promised land and they get comfortable, it's like they just forget. They reach a contented worldliness, and that results in a, a lethargy towards uh, spiritual things. Uh, Lewis actually uh, writes uh, to a friend of his in the, in the 30s, um, talking about some of these ideas in his own life about you know, just the, uh, how terrible the war is going to be um, and how much suffering there's going to be and things like that. But he makes an interesting comment. He says, I dare say for me personally, it has come in the nick of time. I was just beginning to get too well settled in my profession, too successful, and probably self-complacent. I mean, this is Lewis talking about himself here. You know, a lot of screw tape can, is kind of autobiographical for him. Um, the reason he can talk about the way that uh, Satan tempts Christians is because he's been tempted in these ways. And he recognizes life was getting easy. He was becoming complacent. And the war had an effect to wake him up to that. that he needed to start paying attention to this stuff. Yeah, Jeff. Um, a historical point. Lewis was actually fought and wounded in World War One and had a friend that he killed. Yeah. So he, he's very well aware of the tragedies of war. Yeah. Lewis served in World War One, was wounded, had a friend killed, and when World War Two came around, you know, he knew um, he knew what it was going to be like. Also, uh, um, I can't remember. I think it was in letter six. 
Yeah, in letter six, when, it talk, um, when he's talking about the, the anxiety and fear of uh, the, uh, uh, the, or the, you know, the person that's being tempted being called into service, uh, Lewis was actually right at the edge of uh, eligibility for that. So he could have been, again, talking about himself there a little bit also. Any, um, any questions or comments about letter five before we move on to a couple things in letter six? Any questions or, or comments? Yes, Sue. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. I'll read that for it. Zoom. Uh, in the last paragraph, uh, the enemies, which is talking about God, uh, the enemies, human partisans have all been plainly told by him that suffering is an essential part of what he calls redemption. I mean, and right there, he's just, I mean, he's not quoting the Bible, but he's stating what the Bible says very clearly. And this is something as Christians we forget about a lot. We have been told plainly by God we are going to suffer in this life. Um, sometimes, I mean, in America in particular, Christianity can often be sold as your best life now. You know, come to God, uh, have enough faith, you're going to make money, things, you're going to be healthy, uh, your problems are going to go away, all these things. That's not Christianity. Christianity is this is your worst life now. This is as bad as it's going to get for you. Because what's next? Heaven. God. Being with him forever. And there's still suffering in this life. That's, I mean, Jesus says that in many ways. We're going to be persecuted. Um, there's going to be suffering. We have to pick up our cross and follow him. Um, and so as Christians... Suffering is not something that should surprise us, but we should see it as an opportunity to grow in our sanctification in our relationship with God. And that's very often why God brings it into our lives and how God uses it in our lives. And again, this is in opposition to that contented worldliness, because when we're comfortable and things are going well, that's often when our sanctification starts to suffer because we're forgetting about God. So then God brings suffering back into our lives to remind us, hey, you need me. You can't just do this all on your own. And then we that can spur us on in our, our spiritual growth. Yeah, Lane. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great point. Um uh, for Zoom, bringing out the aspect that even just salvation itself requires suffering because of the fact that we're repenting of our sins. We're grieved by our sins. You know, it's, it's not physical suffering per se, but, you know, that spiritual aspect of the, the difficulty and pain and hardship of wrestling and recognizing the fact you're a sinner and you've grieved God and offended him. Yeah. Yeah, broken and broken spirit and contrite heart. He will not. Um, uh, he will not um, despise. Thank you. Yeah, Psalm fifty-one. Anything else from letter five? 
All right. And letter six, a couple things to, to bring out from here. Uh, the first is this uh, conversation about fear and anxiety. And uh, I found this to be a, a very helpful section. Um, oftentimes, when we think uh, when we're when we're dealing with fear and anxiety, there's um, and as Grute puts this very well, he says we want him to be in the maximum uncertainty, so that his mind will be filled with contradictory pictures of the future, every one of which arouses hope or fear. Uh, and then. Uh, you want to keep them thinking about what will happen to them, which is really what might happen to them. Uh, I mean, and that's often what happens in our lives. We have a fear, and we have a fear about something specific, that something might happen, or that this might happen, or that this might happen, or we're, we're anxious about these things, or we start worrying about these things. And there could be, you know, I mean, there could be dozens of things that we're fearful and afraid of. And screw types, screw, I mean, one of the things screw tape says is, don't let him think about that it's actually contradictory for all of those things to happen, but keep him constantly thinking about those things. And don't let him think about the fact that his actual trial is not what might not actually never happen. That's not the trial. The real trial is the fear and anxiety and worry he's experiencing right now. But don't let him think about that. Constantly keep him focused on what might happen, what might happen, or what could go wrong. Uh, in the, uh, the second paragraph of the, the letter, talks about what the enemy means by this. Is, uh, actually, let me just start at the beginning. Your patient will, of course, have picked up the notion that he must submit with patience to the enemy's will. What the enemy means by this is primarily that he should accept with patience the tribulation which has actually been dealt out to him, the present anxiety and suspense. That's the trial. The, you know, the, I mean, in, in this context, it's the, the person who doesn't know if they're going to get called to service or not. You know, if you get called to service, that will be the trial at that point. But that's not the trial right now. The trial you're dealing with is the fear and suspense about are you going to get called or not. Don't, get, don't be worried about uh, something that might not happen. But the present trial is the present anxiety and suspense. It is about this, that present anxiety and suspense, that he is to say, thy will be done, and for the daily task of bearing this, that the daily bread will be provided. It is your business to see that the patient never thinks of the present fear as his appointed cross, but only of the things he is afraid of. Let him regard them as his crosses. Let him forget that, since they are incompatible, they cannot all happen to them. And let him try to practice fortitude and patience to them all in advance. For real resignation at the same moment to a dozen different and hypothetical fates is almost impossible. And the enemy does not greatly assist those who are trying to attain it. Resignation to present and actual suffering, even where that suffering consists of fear, is far easier and is usually helped by this direct action. So I hope you can, can see what's going on here this distinction he's making between you know, your fear of something in the future, or that thing, versus the, the actual struggle you're having of fear in the moment. I mean, I've, I've recognized this in my, my own life. There's uh, things that I've, I've gone through and witnessed that can raise fear about all kinds of potential hypothetical situations in the future, which when you think about them logically, 
really make no sense and are not justified at all. But that's part of the nature of fear often, is that fear is not logical. It's, it's um, intentionally not so. And so in the moment, the point is not to dwell on that potential future, which probably will never happen. It's to deal with that present trial of why am I having fear about this? Why am I struggling with this fear? To, to deal with that fear and, and to be willing to submit to God and say, thy will be done. And ask for his daily grace to, to help you to, to persevere through it. But Satan doesn't want us to think about it that way. He wants, us to, he wants to keep us in that state and to be thinking about, I mean, I, I love the way these put this. The, you know, it's almost impossible to have real resignation, to, to really accept at the same moment a dozen different hypothetical things. That's so often what we try to do. When we think about relying upon God's grace or things like that or trusting him, sometimes we struggle with it because we're, we're asking God to help us with something that actually isn't the real problem. And the real problem is the fear and anxiety we're going through in that moment instead of all these hypothetical futures. So I found, personally, I found this to be a, a very helpful um, distinction. And for us, practically, one of the applications is we need to instead be focusing on what is happening now. This is you know, an application when Jesus is talking about worrying, he says, sufficient for the day is its own trouble. You've got enough trouble today just dealing with your fear and anxiety about all the potential trouble for tomorrow. Don't be worrying about that trouble. Focus on today's trouble. Look to God for, for help in dealing with that now. That is, that's the real trial that is going on. Any thoughts or, or questions on that? Is that the same one as Jesus said? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can't remember if it's in the exact same section or if it's maybe talked about in two different Gospels. But yeah, it's the, yeah, it's the same idea. Yep, yep. Tomorrow will take care of itself. Yeah, Sue. Yes, that's a good question. Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, for Zoom, uh, question is, you know, so what's the line between, you know, this needless worrying about the future versus being prepared and recognizing that there's things that need to be prepared for that you have to think about ahead of time? Um, the first thing I'll say is that I think a lot of this, uh, I think a lot of this is why wisdom is important and why we should seek after uh, wisdom and ask God for wisdom to help us to recognize the difference at times. Because sometimes it's hard to know what that, uh, where that line is. I think another, uh, another part of it is, um, when we're able to step back a little bit and ask ourselves questions about the reasonableness of the fear, I think that's, that can be helpful. So, um, I mean, I'll, I'll share a personal example from my own life. I, I don't, I haven't talked about this very much. Um, so, uh, 
there's a family I used to live with that um, uh, their son lived with us and uh, he passed away in the middle of the night and we found him the next morning. And so my experience was that people die who are young uh, randomly, unexpectedly. And um, in response to that, my brain would go into a state of fear that this could happen to anybody at any time that I knew. Now, you take a step back and you think about it um, logically, you start to realize, well, that's, that's not normal. <laughs> that doesn't just happen all the time. Um, in God's providence, it did happen this time. But that's not something that happens every day. It doesn't happen to you every single day. And so part of my battle and struggle, and, and, and obviously this is much more complicated than, you know, for me than just this, than just this. There's a lot of things going on there. But you know, part of my battle and struggle was that, you know, was dealing with my emotions and how I was responding to what I experienced versus what I knew to be true, that this doesn't just happen all the time. And I had to be careful about not letting my mind go to dark places that weren't good for it to go and to not dwell on those and fight those kinds of kinds of battles. That's something that is very similar to what Lewis is, is talking about here. When you have a fear and anxiety about what could happen, that's not reasonable. It's not re- it wasn't reasonable for me to think that way. Um, it's understandable while I was, why I was struggling with it and why my mind would go there, uh, but it wasn't reasonable in the end. And so, you know, I didn't... <laughs> um, and so I, it's a little bit of an extreme example, but I think hopefully that makes sense a little bit in terms of in thinking about what's reasonable versus not reasonable. Having, uh, you, know, you know, you brought the example, Sue, of a sidewalk... Uh, a sidewalk that's been damaged and is now uneven and presents a tripping hazard, uh, that's a very reasonable thing because that happens and um, that can cause a lot of problems. And so that's something where you recognize it and you're like, okay, I need to prepare for that. I need to fix it. I need to address it. Uh, that's very different than what I was going through in the, the aftermath of what I experienced. That wasn't very reasonable to, you know, to spend all this time, you know, thinking about what could happen um, and how to respond to it and deal with it and stuff. It's like, well, that's not going to happen. That's not normal. Um, does that help answer that question a little bit? Okay. Yeah, Lane. Also, do not be anxious. So I think that once you're concerned, you just not Once you're concerned, you get over into that anxious. Yeah. Yeah, that's very good. Uh, Lane's bringing out that when Jesus says, you know, not to be anxious, that can be a helpful um, guardrail in terms of, you know, you can see something, you can be concerned about something. But once you start to cross that line is that once you start to get into that realm of being anxious about it all the time, where it's dominating your thoughts and it's dominating everything you can can think about and it's affecting the rest of your life, that's when you're crossing over a line there. Yeah. Yep, Matthew uh, 6.34. Um, 
Yep, what we were talking about earlier, sufficient for the days, it's a trouble. Yep. Any other comments or questions on this? Yeah, Terry. Yeah, yeah, Terry's bringing out that um, fear can often be a camouflage for uh, doubt, um, for doubt and, and unbelief that, and to use the example of the, you know, the, the guy who may be called to war, well, part of that fear of going to war may be fear of death. And what's the fear of death about? Well, maybe doubting, you know, God really saved me um, or that God's really going to take care of me or that, you know, um, God's not going to, you know, take care of my loved ones afterwards if I end up dying in battle and things like that. Um, and when you, and that's an important point when you're dealing with fear and anxiety to start to, to get down to the root issues of what is it that's causing this fear. And especially, I mean, there can be a variety of causes, but um, especially when it's dealing with those issues of doubting God or not believing God, things like that. Those are really important. We need to uh, need to address and um, and that is often what fears about in the end. Yes. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah, for Zoom, you know, making the, that distinction between uh, that often for fear, fear can often be about what we can control and what we can't control. What we can control, we're not afraid about because, you know, we all trust ourselves to a certain extent. <laughs> um, but once it's something that's outside of our control, that's where fear often starts to, to really get a, get a hold of us. And I think that connects with what, what Terry's saying as well, that the, the solution in many ways to fear is to trust in God, which is why fear not is, if I remember correctly, the uh, most common commandment in the entire Bible. Fear not, fear not, fear not, fear not, fear not. And it's almost always told to God's people in a moment of trial and struggle and difficulty where they're supposed to be trusting God. And he says, don't be afraid. I got this, um, to put it colloquially. Um, but that's, you know, that's something we struggle with all the time. It's very common. Um, yeah. That's true. Yep. Yeah, fear can um, motivate us to uh, address things quickly. But I think there's, there is a difference between you know, the, the fear of someone falling in the sidewalk versus... Well, I guess what I'm trying to say, you know, there, there's there's... Uh, varieties and degrees. That's probably the right word. Someone say that? Yeah, degrees. Yeah. Uh, degrees of fear. Um, I, actually, that's probably a, you know, we need multiple axes because, you know, you can have degrees in terms of the seriousness, but then also the reasonableness of it. Um, yeah. Uh, Sue and then Lane. Yep. Mm-hmm. And my mom and dad 
summer that my brother, my brother's number was low, and his was going to get called. And I can remember my mom saying, "Take it to prayer." Doesn't mm -hmm. mean he's not going to get called. Right. The Lord's going to take care of whatever situation. Yeah. So, prayer. That's what we don't do. We tend to go try to fix it. Yeah, that's exactly right. We, we, we try to fix it or fret as opposed to going to God in prayer. And interesting, that's what Screwtape says here. You know, um, he says this is what you're, you know, it's about these things that you're supposed to say, thy will be done and, uh, you know, this, uh, give us this day our daily bread. Screwtape quotes two prayers, Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, and then he quotes the, the Lord's prayer. You know, that's what Christians are supposed to be doing about these particular things. He tries to distract us and get us fretting about other things and, and part of what he's talking about here is uh, recognizing the right thing to try to address. You know, we can pray about um, things in the future that may never happen, but are we dealing with our heart right now for God to help us in this current moment of fear and to trust him no matter what that future may end up being? Which I think is what your, your mom was doing, the, the right thing. Uh, you have something like? I think sometimes fear can be a good Yep. Oh, that's absolutely yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Fear is a good thing because it protects us from being stupid. <laughs> uh, I had a lot of. Uh, well, I like to think of it as healthy fear as a kid, and uh, many of my friends did not have healthy fear, and that's why I never broke a bone, and they did. <laughs> so, yeah. All right. One last thing I wanted to uh, to bring out from letter six. <clears throat> and this was on the, <clears throat> the last couple sections. Um, so he, he has this, uh, let's see, I think this is the last, well, it's a long paragraph. Um, but he says this, do what you will. There is going to be some benevolence as well as some malice in your patient's soul. You know, he's talking about the context of the war. You know, you're, even in war, you're not going to be able to get them to be completely malicious. You're not going to be able to, you know, there's always going to be mixed emotions. Uh, there's a uh, there's a great line in here. I need to. Uh, this is just a side note. Um, <laughs> he's talking about the British. He says they are creatures of that miserable sort who loudly proclaim that torture is too good for their enemies, and then give tea and cigarettes to the first wounded German pilot who turns up at the back door, which apparently was based on a real event, <laughs> like that actually happened. Um, and so I just found that humorous. Maybe you don't, but I I thought it was funny. Um, Anyway, back to the, what I was trying to say. Um, everyone's going to have to have some benevolence as well as some malice. Um, the great thing, this is the point I want to draw out. The great thing is to direct the malice to his immediate neighbors whom he meets every day and to thrust his benevolence out to the remote circumference to people he does not know. The malice thus becomes wholly real and the benevolence largely imaginary. Um. This is at the you know this is getting at the idea of you know we in terms of our relationships with other people the relationship you have with the person that you see and interact with person to person is so much greater than your relationship to people on the other side of the world that you have never seen in person don't know their names will never talk to never hear from anything like that and the reason we need to keep that distinction is because it can be very easy to feel benevolence towards people we don't know. 
I don't think there is anybody who doesn't have a little bit of benevolence for, you know, orphans in Africa and things like that. You know, what's that, that phrase that mothers use to get their children to, you know, to eat all their food? You know, there are starving children in Africa right now. Be thankful, eat your vegetables. Um, you know, everyone has a little bit of benevolence for people who are suffering that they don't know. But that's largely imaginary because there's nothing actual, there's no actual real relationship. The real relationship is the actual orphan you know or the actual person who's suffering or especially that person who annoys you but needs your help and you're supposed to love and care for them and, and provide for them in their, their moment of need. Um, Screwtape talks about, he says, there is no good at all in, in, in inflaming his hatred of Germans if at the same time a pernicious habit of charity is growing up between him and his mother, his employer, and the man he meets in the train. You know, you could stir up all these, you know, awful feelings towards Germans, but if he's actually learning to be kind to his mom, who he's talked about in a previous letter, he doesn't have a great relationship with, that's actually really bad because that's actually a, a, a big deal for him to learn charity towards his mother. And the reality is, if he meets a German face-to-face after building all these habits of charity with people he knows, he's probably going to be charitable to the German, even though he's had this, you know, this general anger and hatred towards Germans. And so that's, that's something that often we can, we can think we are good and kind and charitable people because we have these benevolent feelings towards this anonymous, anonymous blob of individuals we don't know. Um, but the important thing is, is actually the relationships, the, the in-person um, relationships we have of other people. And he, then he talks about the, you know, the human being as you know, this uh, concentric circles. You have his will, then his intellect, and then his family, or a, a fantasy. Um, and it, he goes on to talk about, you must keep on shoving all the virtues outward till they are finally located in the circle of fantasy. And all the desirable qualities, which is, of course, you know, all the bad things from, the, from our perspective, all the desirable qualities inward into the will. What he's getting at here is, you know, you want all these good things that he thinks he's supposed to do, you know, kindness, love, mercy, you know, push that out of his inner being until it's only being applied to people he doesn't know. And constantly encourage them to, uh, to harbor anger and hatred and malice you know, all those things towards people he does know. That's actually getting to the heart of the person as opposed to this, you know, this realm of fantasy of people he never interacts with. Uh, and so this is something that's, uh, you know, important for us is to, um, to recognize that, and, and, I, and I want to be clear as well, this does not mean that we shouldn't have benevolent thoughts about people we don't know or things like that. But it's to keep it in perspective that that means nothing if you're a terrible jerk to everybody around you that you actually know and have dealings with, th- those are the things that's matter. I mean, that's, you know, who's your neighbor? You know, you could say, I would do anything for those people over there if I had the opportunity. But if you're passing by the guy in the road who's been beaten up, like, you know, the, the high priest and the scribe and, you know, those guys did, you know, you're not being a good neighbor. Jesus asked, who's the neighbor? Well, the one who had pity on him. The one who actually went as he saw the guy in the road and, Picked him up, bound up his wounds, paid for him to recover at the end, and all that. So, I could go on more about that, but I'll stop. <laughs>
Any, uh, any questions or comments on that? That's all I had to, to bring out from, um, from letter six this week. Or anything else from anything we've talked about today? All right. Um, I want to go ahead and uh, ask if there's any prayer requests that anyone has.